Please Leave podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. When I was six years old, my brother walked behind a boulder in a national park and vanished forever. My family and I were on a road trip across the country and were camping in various state and national parks between our home in Illinois and Southern California. And when he disappeared, we were in a small park in New Mexico. We were out hiking and stopped for a picnic lunch, and my eight-year-old brother, Jason, wandered off after he was done eating, hunting for fossils or scorpions or whatever eight-year-olds hunt for in the high desert. The really spooky thing is, I was watching him when it happened. He was about a hundred feet away and slowly wandered behind a boulder that was about twice his size. I waited for him to appear on the other side or emerge triumphant on top of the tall rock, but after several seconds, there wasn't any sign of him at all. I got up, dusted off my knees, and headed over to where I watched him go, curious about what he found behind that boulder that had captured his attention. I got to the boulder and snuck behind it, hoping he'd be so engrossed in whatever he found that I'd be able to scare him. But when I rounded the side and looked behind it, there was nothing there but pebbles and the dried remains of some desert plant. I did a quick 360 around the rock, thinking maybe he had caught onto my plan to trick him and was going to trick me instead. I even did a quick double back, hoping to catch him right behind me. But there was nothing. Mom? I called out tentatively. My six-year-old brain couldn't process whether this was something to be scared of, but I knew I needed help. What, Brian? She called back, distracted by packing up the remaining items from our lunch so we could get back to our hike. I can't find Jason, I said, and the taste of the words leaving my mouth was like acid. I felt a cold horror come over my body. The feeling of something unimaginably awful lurking and planning to present itself in the next few minutes of my life. That feeling was right. And I... I haven't been the same since. What? My mom asked, her voice straining to remain calm while her brain decided if I was serious or if this was some kind of game. She pulled herself up regardless, propelled by maternal instincts, and started to hurry toward me. My father also emerged from wherever he'd been relieving himself and trailed close behind my mother. I saw Jason come back here, but but now I can't see him, I half shouted as my parents closed the gap between themselves and me in the last place I'd seen my now-missing brother. 
Their concern turned to absolute panic in a shockingly short amount of time as they both did the 360 of the large rock that I'd just done and then spun in small desperate circles surveying the land around us that was just miles and miles of sandy dirt, sage, brush, and the occasional cactus. There wasn't a place for miles for an eight-year-old boy to hide, but they both began screaming his name regardless. We searched for maybe 20 minutes, and when it became abundantly clear that Jason hadn't managed to squeeze himself up behind a skinny cactus, cartoon style, my father hiked out to find help while my mum and I stayed behind and screamed ourselves raw. By the time my father got back with some rangers, my mum was just crying in a heap in the sand, intermittently calling Jason's name while I orbited her, desperately trying to figure out some way to fix an impossible situation. Within the next 24 hours, the local authorities assembled the largest manhunt in the park's history, and the numbers of people that showed up to look for my brother still haven't been matched to this day. My aunt flew in to keep an eye on me while my parents searched with the search parties day and night for hours and then days and then weeks and into months. Police searched for miles around, talked to all the strange men who lived in the derelict homes nearby, tested the ground for hidden sinkholes, and even consulted a psychic at one point when literally no clues had been discovered. After about two weeks, the numbers started to dwindle, and then after two months, just a couple of policemen were on the case. Then, once a year had passed, no one was really looking anymore, but my parents stayed on it. They sold our house and moved to the area where Jason had disappeared, and we started a strange new life. There was no space to mourn my brother because that space was immediately filled with my parents' constant vigilance and desperation to see his face drifting through the small, dusty town we lived near, and the hope that he would one day wander up to our new home, a little thinner and scratched up, but otherwise fine. Neither of those things happened, and eventually the grief of losing a son and the torture of not knowing where he was turned my father into an angry alcoholic, and my mother became a weird, scattered, and very unpredictable version of her previous self. We spent a lot of time hiking in the park where Jason went missing, forever on a demented scavenger hunt for some sign of him. But there was nothing. No one ever found a single thing that explained why my eight-year-old brother stepped behind a boulder on a sunny summer day and disappeared forever. I distracted myself from the horror show that was my home life by becoming an exemplary example of a young man. I got the top grades in my class, played every sport that was available, and was the best at all of them. I dated the most beautiful girls, charmed my teachers, donated my time to charity, you name it, I did it. I would have been impressive under normal circumstances, but considering my tragic past with my brother disappearing under extremely unusual circumstances, I was basically a superhero in my hometown. 
If they could have changed the name of the town to my name, they would have done so, and they were all beside themselves with joy when I got accepted into four Ivy League schools and decided to study medicine. Everyone was beside themselves, but my parents, of course. I'm sure some part of each of them, deep, deep inside, buried under all of the grief and agony and endless pain and wondering, was truly happy for me. But they were only able to muster dead-eyed and lukewarm congratulations every time I achieved something even more spectacular than the last spectacular thing I'd achieved. As soon as I graduated high school, I moved out east to get as far away from the endless dust and agonizing quiet and suffocating hopelessness and total lack of affection that came with living with my parents in the town where my brother vanished. I wasn't the golden god in college that I had been in high school, but I did just fine for myself and learned very quickly that a missing brother story is the fastest way to capture the attention of a room full of people or to get into the designer pants of a pretty Ivy League co-ed. I graduated with honors, got into a great residency program, followed by my fellowship at a hospital that was my first choice, and was hired by the same hospital, thus beginning my dream life with my dream career. I met the beautiful daughter of a beloved senator at a charity event, and we got married a year later. We held off on having kids because we got married young, and she wants to focus on her journalism career for a little while longer. But we will eventually round out our dream life with 2.5 kids and a designer dog, I'm sure. Right around the time we got married, a little thing called the World Wide Web became fully available for public use, and a couple years after that, I realized I could use it to find out more information about my brother's disappearance and connect it with other people who had had similar experiences. I spent hours rereading articles about Jason's disappearance, examining the details with fresh adult eyes, but I never came any closer to understanding what happened, and neither has anyone else who has studied the case over the years. The best anyone can come up with is aliens or that he wandered into some sort of desert portal, but beyond that, it remains a total and complete mystery. Recently, though, I found threads and articles talking about the fact that Jason isn't the only one who has disappeared in remote parks under such strange circumstances. In fact, there are over a thousand cases like Jason's. Like the case of a child who wandered a hundred feet down a river and was never seen again. Or when two brothers hid in some low bushes along a trail to scare their parents, and one brother emerged unharmed, but the other disappeared forever. I read through each case, mesmerized, that we weren't the only family burdened with such an awful unknowing and mystified as to why so many children and adults seem to simply vanish on innocent family trips. This discovery was equal parts chilling and comforting, as I had spent my entire life thinking I was the only one who carried the guilt and uncertainty that comes with living through such a horrible mystery. But I wasn't. I was one of many. 
I decided to reach out to the mother of a boy who had wandered away from his brothers on a mountain hike and vanished like Jason had. Her name is Linda, and she has maintained a blog for over a decade, religiously posting theories and updates in hopes of keeping her son's memory alive and to create a space where people can reach out and maybe send a clue that will lead her to finding out what happened to him someday. Finding that answer seems like it would require an act of God, but when something that unbelievable has already happened to you, there's no reason to not believe that a different form of divine intervention is possible too. I sent her a message one evening after dinner, and she responded almost immediately. We stayed up all night, chatting, sharing stories of the initial shock and grief, the investigations, the frustrations, how it affected our families, and where we'd ended up after living through something that devastating. I was absolutely wrecked the next day from lack of sleep, but I felt a calm that I hadn't felt in years. It felt so validating to speak with someone who had gone through what I had gone through and could relate and offer supporting words and some additional insight into how to continue my life with something so dark in my past. We chatted for a couple more weeks after that and eventually decided to meet up on a Saturday. And she only lived five hours away, so I could easily make the drive in half a day. I rented a room in a bed and breakfast and drove out after work on Friday. I knew I'd be getting in kinda late, so we'd made plans for me to meet at Linda's home for breakfast the next morning. Maybe it was the overstuffed mattress at the inn, but I slept better that night than I'd slept in years, comforted by the idea that I was about to meet someone like me for the first time in my life. Someone who had experienced an endless darkness a total lack of hope or direction, and who knew what it felt like to live among people who didn't. I got up extra early, showered and put on my favorite outfit like we were meeting for a first date instead of meeting to talk about our loved ones who had vanished without a trace under extremely mysterious circumstances. I made it to Linda's house, right on time, and when she opened the door, our connection was instant. She was slightly older than my own mother, totally lovely, and still had a smile in her eyes, unlike my mom, who would occasionally smile with her mouth, but there was never a light in her face again after Jason disappeared and her soul died. She welcomed me with the warmth of a family member reunited with a relative they hadn't seen in a while, and we chatted seamlessly for hours over the beautiful breakfast feast she'd prepared. She talked about how the first several years were almost unbearable, and the stress eventually ended her marriage, like it did so often. She talked about how she finally started to live her life again by donating her time and money to charities who helped people like her, and by joining groups where she could find solace and give others solace in return. She asked me about Jason and my family and squeezed my hand as I told her about my once happy childhood that turned cold and empty in the blink of an eye. I told her that my parents had given up hope a long time ago, and that lack of hope had turned them into hollowed out shells of the people they once were. Their bodies moved and talked, but there was no sign of life or humanity inside. 
I asked her how she had remained so loving and alive, and she explained that she chose to believe that her son had been taken by someone who desperately wanted a child and couldn't have one of their own, and that he had grown up in a loving home, and that gave her some comfort. She said because she didn't know, she gave herself permission to believe what she wanted and felt she deserved that fantasy after what she'd been through. She said she chose not to believe in monsters because the real monster for her is not knowing. She said the real monster is knowing that there is technically an explanation for everything, but every once in a while, something happens that doesn't have an explanation and that thing becomes the biggest thing that ever happened to you it's the loneliness and absolute impenetrable solitude that comes with having something unexplainable happen right in front of your eyes and then that event rips your life to shreds chews you up and spits you out and makes a new kind of monster out of you if you let it then she turned to me and said How did you fight the monster, dear boy? I told her about how hard I've worked since Jason vanished and all that I'd accomplished and the community I had rallied around me and about my beautiful wife and our promising future. She squeezed my hand again and her eyes shone with pride for a boy she'd just met and I could tell I'd made her feel just a little bit better and that made me feel just a little bit better in return. We chatted for a while longer, and the only reason I finally left is because it was time for her to leave for one of her various volunteer appointments. She gave me a massive hug at the door, and we held each other for an extra long time, letting the feeling of belonging linger for just a bit longer. She held my hands for a moment and looked into my eyes and said, I know I just met you but I'm very proud of you. Her eyes filled lightly with tears. Keep moving forward and don't let the darkness win. There is life after a loss and you deserve to live even if your parents couldn't find the will to move on. I promised her I would and we hugged again. Then I got into my car and I started off on the road to home. I spent the next few hours going over what we talked about. I turned over every word and savored the warmth of the interaction with a woman who was so open and loving despite having just met me. I thought about what she said about the terrible burden of not knowing what happened to someone you love and how that not knowing is like a disease that infects everyone it touches. About how not knowing and make someone a monster if they don't fight it, and how her eyes shone when I told her about all the things I'd done to fight the emptiness forever threatening my soul. I smiled again, thinking about all the things I'd done, and then smiled even wider when I thought about my good boys. Some people would let the darkness and loneliness in, but I didn't. I kept the darkness away by being a good boy. And I'm teaching my good boys how to keep the darkness away, too, by teaching them everything they need to know to make the world love them. I'm very careful when I select my good 
boys because they have to be just right. The good boys have parents like mine. Parents who have empty eyes and smiles that feel cold and they never give hugs or hold hands or tell you it's going to be okay. The good boys need my help. They need to know how to win in this world and I know how to help them. I messed up with Derek because he was my first good boy. I was too hard on him and he didn't make it, but I learned. I believe that every good boy will get there in their own time. Some good boys are physically strong and some are mentally smart, but I'm patient. I will keep them and teach them until they are good at all things. I'll keep them until the world will love them and love everything about them. I keep Derek in the room with the good boys to remind me to remind the good boys that bad things happen when you make mistakes. Boys disappear when you're a bad boy and bad boys make mistakes. And when bad boys make mistakes and make other boys disappear, the boys that disappear don't come back. They never, ever, ever come back. was written by Courtney Eck and narrated by Nicholas Richardson. Our Patreon is officially live, so for more stories that haunt and a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and why we do it, please join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. Thank you.